You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and this is Valerie Koo. You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. And you may have recognized that there is a new intro to our podcast this week. And I think that that is appropriate because I've just come back from the US, from LA and San Diego. So we thought we'd throw in a bit of an American twist this week. I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate. You are here with Alison Tate, and I feel like I've just been introduced by Guy Smiley from Sesame Street, or possibly Buzz Lightyear, which makes me feel very excited, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> so we will uh, decide whether we're going to keep Buzz Lightyear at the beginning of the intro. I kind of like him, but uh, we'll see what you think. Leave us uh, your feedback in the comments. So what have you been up to this week, Al? Well, I haven't been in San Diego at a social media conference, so I'm a little bit disappointed about that, particularly having seen your, you know, Qantas Business Lounge photos on Facebook. Um, No, I have been doing uh, what I have to do for the next couple of weeks because my children go on holiday soon and I'm desperate to get my first draft finished before they go. So I have been writing. That sounds good. After all, you are a writer. This podcast (laughs) is called So You Want to Be a Writer. Um, But yes, I did attend a social media conference in San Diego. But uh, while I was there, many listeners will know, if you've been listening from the start of our series, that we've been talking about the Amtrak Writers in Residence program, where Amtrak will uh, sort of kind of give these free long distance tickets for writers who want to pen the great American novel. I suppose, uh, on their trains. So I thought I had to give it a go myself. So in the end, I actually, you know, decided to forego my air ticket uh, from San Diego to LA and I bought my little Amtrak ticket and I sat on the train and I had an absolute ball. I'm going to catch the train from now on in America. Really? Yeah, it's I got free Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's worthwhile then. So oh, did you actually get some work done? I did get some work done and um, I had some fun in LA because I um, caught up with some friends who were journalists and photographers um, in the entertainment industry and it was really quite interesting seeing how the Hollywood entertainment press works. Um, you know, my friend covers the Oscars and, uh, and it's, you know, is always on the lookout for certain, um, you know, stories. But I met a couple of paparazzi just to get some of their stories as well and get some inside goss on what's going on. And, um, you know, in, in that world. So that's, that's a whole exciting. other episode, I think. That is a whole other episode. But what I really need to know is, did you get a shot? We did. Oh, and who did you get a shot of? We uh, got a shot of... Um, Jeremy Piven from Entourage. I, some listeners will be fans of Entourage, which I loved. It's a fantastic show. And Jeremy Piven played uh, Ari Gold. And um, he was having lunch at a cafe in LA. And um, 
it was it was right it was great <laughs> was he aware that he was being papped or were you sneakily shooting him from under the table well i didn't do any of the shooting although <laughs> i did sort of surreptitiously try and pretend that i was typing an email on my ipad and then sort of lift my ipad to kind of the direction of him so if you look at my instagram feed you will see a very very blurry picture <laughs> Of Jeremy, and um, clearly I will never become a paparazzi. <laughs> Can't really take well, photos. Never say never, Val. Anything's possible. Yeah, it could be my next big career. <laughs> but uh, more closer to home, we've got some news in the writing world that News Corp is launching a new print publication in Adelaide, and uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. But I think this is pretty interesting because we've heard, in, particularly in the last two years, so much uh, comment about print is dead, it's all going online. But clearly, News Corp thinks that there's still life in print yet. Do you think there's still life in print yet? I do. I, I really do. Because I think, you know, I think you only have to look around you. I mean, yes, I do see a lot of people taking in their news and their whatever via their iPads and things when I sit in cafes, which as you know, I don't do as often as some. But I also feel that there are still a lot of people who like who like a, a printed page. And I think that where the future probably is, is is not so much in mass market like it has been in the past. It's just in those niche publications, which is why, you know, a specific print publication for Adelaide makes sense. Mm. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, definitely. I think niche also in terms of there's going to be a lot more brands that are producing their own print publications. Net a Porter is a case in point. So many people will be familiar with Net a Porter because that's where they uh, do their online shopping and that beautiful black box arrives and you and you get really excited about the handbag that you just spent way too much money on. But now Net a Porter have realised that their site isn't enough. They're actually doing a print publication. And one of the themes of of the conference that I just went to was very much so on the concept of content marketing, but also the facts the fact that brands are now publishers, not yeah. not just online, but also yeah. in print. Well, you wrote a great blog post about that not so long ago about the rise of branded journalism and how freelance writers could you know utilize opportunities in that area. And I, I do think it's worth a read because I think it is definitely you know, a way of the future and, you know, those publications need content. That's right and um, it's interesting that you bring that particular blog post up and we'll put that in the show notes um, because I got hate mail from that post. No way. Why? <laughs> I did. Well, first and foremost, there were some people who objected to the term branded journalism. Now, I did not invent that term. No. <laughs> that term has been out there for a very long time. Somebody else invented it and I'm just using the word that's out out there. And uh, I got quite a few irate journalists sending me very, very cranky and aggressive emails saying, how dare I use the word branded and journalism together. Journalism, you know, is, is something that needs to be independent, that has to has its own voice, has to be, it's got nothing to do what a corporation or, you know, brand might put out. So, you know, every each to their own. Every, every they obviously, you know, then had to get it off their chest, and well, they that's, certainly that's, did. Look, I I do understand their ire to a degree, um, and I get, I think you know, custom media is a, is another term that's that's often used to describe that type of publication. Yes. Um, but I also think that um, people need to have a good look at what the publications are because they do work in different ways. Some of them will have completely 
independent stories within the, within the actual cover. Mm. Um, some of the stories will be advertorial-based or will feature the product of the particular um, corporation in question, but other stories will be completely irrelevant, like will be com- not irrelevant, but be completely different, will be completely independent. Whereas um, other corporations, you know, th- there's their brand message on every single page. Yeah. You know, their yeah. name splattered everywhere. So it's very much a case of taking, it's like any publication. You have to look at them all, have a good look at them all before you decide if your work's going to work within those covers and then decide for yourself. I just, I, I don't think you can blast an entire section of the industry without, without any sort of um, provocation. Exactly. And also it's working the other way around as well. You've got traditional new independent news sites that are now offering advertisers native advertising. You yeah. know, the, the term is native advertising. And, you know, it's another version of the sponsored advertorial or whatever. So it's been working that in that direction for a long time as well. And obviously it's been clearly labelled as sponsored advertorial. Yeah, but look, I, I think the labelling is the important thing. Yes. As long as the content that is, is definitely brand specific or brand orientated or advertorial or straight advertising is labeled as such then I, and, and people are completely and utterly aware of what they're reading mm. then all good and clearly if you're going to the site of Procter and Gamble and you know Procter and Gamble and, and you're, you're reading branded journalism you know it's from Procter and Gamble I know well yes you would you would think that wouldn't you <laughs> Anyway, also um, recently, I just thought that this was a great story, um, where a Korean advertising agency for an electronics, um, for you know, for Samsung, they were doing an ad and they've apologised for losing control of two water buffaloes that were involved in a TV commercial shoot in Sydney's Inner West. (laughs) Which I I thought was hilarious, you know, but the funny thing about that was how unsurprised I was by it. Like I saw the, I saw it um, sort of pop up in in my newsfeed and things like that and I was like, oh, water buffaloes in Newtown. I wonder where they came from. And I used to live not too far from there when I lived in Sydney. And like my first thought was that they'd escaped from someone's backyard, that they're like the new Newtown pet. You know, it's, you know, if you're going to find an unusual pet you're going to find it in Newtown it's it's true I mean admittedly water buffaloes are a little larger than what you would normally see but um but yeah to see them sort of traipsing down King Street just made me laugh so much I thought it was great so you, you thought that the Newtown hipsters had moved on from the chooks in the backyard to water buffaloes I the next did I thought bit. they'd gone from dogs on strings to water buffaloes in the backyard <laughs> oh what can I say so have you ever had I mean that's the difficulty when you're working with talent you know they always say never work with kids or children or because it's so difficult when you're working with talent and you and I have done heaps of photo shoots in our life when we're in magazines and all of that sort of thing have you had difficult situations with talent or challenging situations with talent uh, I have had some like I, I think probably you know like I, I had a very sort of challenging moment one time when I was working for Cleo and there was a uh, a very well-respected and and lovely politician who agreed to appear in the magazine and then was very uncomfortable with having to, you know, they, they, she they cleofied her and she was she looked amazing but she looked quite unlike herself by the time you know in the sense that she was generally a jeans kind of girl mm. and she ended up in a long sequin frock which was most assuredly not her, mm. um, but you know in the end she you know it was a matter of well it's kind of horses for courses. This is the environment I've agreed to be in 
Mm, that's mm. what I'm going to do. But I know that female politicians have found themselves in all sorts of hot water over the years with the various shoots for women's magazines. And I do see, I can see why they are sensitive about it. Um, but I just find, you know, I, I think the most difficult and most challenging situation for a journalist is, is just the the when you're interviewing someone and you're getting nothing from them that is oh. incredibly challenging situation and um you really got to work extremely hard and often you'll walk away with a you know like pages and pages of quotes all of which say nothing mm, and you absolutely. think where am i going with this so <laughs> I'd hard. rather have a water buffalo than that i've got to tell you <laughs> <laughs> so hard I, I i think that sometimes that it's not just the um sometimes it's very hard to extract some useful content um from useful quotes but sometimes it's just dealing with the personalities and the egos. Um, I remember doing. I mean, you both are not. Both you and I have done the fifty most eligible bachelors for Clio, oh, yes. which is which is <laughs> which is uh, just a highlight, really. <laughs> which is several podcasts worth of stories. But oh, yes. I remember one guy who just thought he was you know, Tom Cruise in Top Gun because he was a, you know, pilot in the uh, Air Force or Army or something. And he just thought that, of course, he's in the 50 most eligible bachelors. And um, I remember him giving me his business card and it was, and I looked at the business card and I thought, this so does not look like an official official business card. Um, but he had... Pre- clearly printed his own business cards and put the insignia of the, um, you know, whichever defence force he was from on the business card and then his um, name, which shall remain unknown, and underneath his name in quote marks was his call sign, you know, like Maverick or Goose or Iceman. Um, It was none of those things things and then it had this great line that I'm sure he thought it was the best thing out it said um uh fighter pilots make movies strike pilots make history oh my lord I sincerely hope you framed that (laughs) (laughs) what not to put on your business card I've Certainly never forgotten it. And I would suspect that if that, that particular arm of the Defence Force knew that he was handing these around with the uh, insignia on his business card, they wouldn't be all too happy. <laughs> anyway, uh, the other news story that I came across this week that I just thought was amazing, and we'll put this in the show notes, is a story about a guy in England who decided that, um, who tried to buy something online. I think it was some gaming, you know, consoles or that sort of thing. And he was really disappointed by the result. He, you know, they, the seller failed to deliver the goods. So this guy, his name's Ed Joseph, decided to take revenge by sending the seller, who didn't deliver the goods, the entire works of Shakespeare by text. Oh, and man. that ended up being 29000 305 texts because he realised that he could just copy and paste... He could just copy and paste um, the, the the entire, you know, lot of Hamlet or whatever into um, a text message, but it would be delivered as individual text messages depending on the, um, wow. you know, number of characters. So, yeah, the seller was none too happy. Well, it's a very Shakespearean form of revenge, really. <laughs> like it's 
very dramatic and, you know, there's some humour in there and there's a little bit of tragedy for the guy at the other end. (laughs) (laughs) um, I'll give him 10 points for creativity. Yeah, I'm sure Shakespeare never knew that his um, work would be used for this purpose. (laughs) probably think it was hilarious. (laughs) Exactly. He'd probably write a play about it. Anyway, so what writing, what book have you been reading this week? Well, I, um, this week I decided I would read, um, um, a bit of a craft book because it caught my attention, I think via Twitter again, you know, like Twitter sells books, people. Mm. Um, it was, a, it's a book called write your novel from the middle, um, mm. a new approach for plotters, pantsers and everyone in between. And it's written by a guy called James Scott Bell. And the notion of it kind of really intrigued me because uh, to me, how would you start in the middle? if you were, you know, writing an entire novel. Mm. I tend to be a start-to-finish kind of writer with my Mm. first draft. I, You know, I start at point one and I aim for point 2,000 million and seven and (laughs) I just sort of draw draw a diagonal line through it as I go. Um, But this was actually – it was actually quite an interesting book. It was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I will will put that out there right now. I I originally sort of thought, oh, this sounds like a novelty thing. I'll read it. Um, But – he makes some very interesting points and I think one of the most important points he makes um, is that the midpoint of a book is generally considered to be a plot point. You know, mm. something happens mm. that changes everything and and therefore you get a second, you know, you get a fresh breath of wind down, to, you know, to, towards the conclusion. But his point is that it's actually not a plot point but a moment of character reflection and if you can figure that out first mm. up, you're going to know what your whole book's about. So you're not actually necessarily sitting down and writing the, the middle three scenes of the book. What you're trying to do through a series of steps that he, he goes through, and it's all quite practical. There's a lot of, you know, how to and I do this and act one, act two, act three sort of stuff going on. Um, that if you can sit down and work out what this point is, that you will find. Um, and he gives, also gives really practical um, examples of it by taking apart some quite well-known books um, to show you where this midpoint is. Mm. And um, so I, I actually found it really interesting. I, I, it's a very easy read. Like, it didn't take me long at all. And I got to the end of it and I thought, ah, I wonder if this is actually, if I'm doing this in my current manuscript that mm. I'm working on. Because at the time, I was not about, you know, about 26,000 words into a sort of 50, 55,000 word manuscript. So I opened up my manuscript and voila, there it was. It's really? right there and it's really interesting and it does. It sort of sums up pretty much what the book is about in a moment where the the uh, character is, you know, introspectively sort of thinking about something. Um, so I, I recommend it. I think it's a really interesting read and I think if you're – um, you know, interested in the craft of writing, then I'd give it a crack because it's it's a slightly different take and sometimes a slightly different take can give you a whole new direction. And do you think for your next book you will follow these steps now that consciously now that you've read these? Um, I don't know. Possibly. I'll, 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 we can go back to that when I start the next one if you like. Mm. Um, I think I think if you work off the basis of a character, um, which uh, you know, with this particular manuscript I'm working on, it's a, it's very much like there's an overarching, very big plot, but the focus is always going to be on on the main character, and you know, he's a particular kind of guy, and so if you um, if you focus on that, I think you're always going to have an idea of 
where he needs to be in the middle of the book mm. because you need an arc. Like you've always got to have a character arc in your head. Well, I, I mean, that's kind of the way I do, whether it's conscious or subconscious. I think what he's trying, what James Scott Bell is suggesting is make it conscious and you'll yeah. have a much clearer direction, an idea of where you're going. So I don't know. I'll get back to you on that. If when I sit down to think about the next book, I will mm. um, give some thought to what my midpoint might be. So speaking of writing books, we, there's been some discussion this week about first drafts. Well, there has. Well, I find the notion of first drafts, you know, really interesting. I think, that, you know, there's this notion, I mean, Ernest Hemingway has the, has the quote, you know, the first draft of anything is shit. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> I remember writing a blog post last year um, saying, you know, one of the blog posts I wrote was about the fact that your first draft doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be finished. Mm. And I think so many people get so stuck with editing and re-editing and whatever the first three sort of chapters of the book that they never get any further. Yeah. Um, so the notion is that, you know, you, you get it out as best you can, which is currently what I'm doing. I am, this is what I'm working on at the moment is a, is a vomit draft. It is joke. Get the <laughs> words on the page in a huge rush and just and you know find your way through the story as you're doing that um now it's interesting because i spoke to a guy the other day jack ellis and we're going to have an interview with him um in a couple of weeks time he wrote his entire first draft longhand to oh slow God. down the process which mm. was i was just going whoa really you know mm. um so i guess i guess the message is that everybody writes their first draft in a different way um your shit may be different to my shit, may be different to someone else's shit, but generally speaking, you know, there's going to be shit involved somewhere. Now, I came across a blog during my travels and um, it's a crime writer called Rebecca Bradley and she has a, a thread called, uh, once a month I think it is, called What's Your First Draft Like? Mm. And it's a series of authors just answering a whole lot of questions about their first draft process what does it look like how does it work do you outline do you not do you have a set routine do you write pen and paper first and I just found it really interesting I think because I think everybody's trying to work out how other people do it mm. and I think that's half the interest like when you're struggling your way through a first draft you're thinking someone else is doing this easier than I am mm. and I need to find the secret to that and you know it may just be that you know reading through this kind of stuff is is, will unlock something for you. So I, I find them really interesting. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you write first drafts, obviously, of your nonfiction stuff. Yeah. What's your process with that? It's very different with nonfiction. Of course, there's you, heaps of room for improvement, but but the whole, the second and third and fourth and whatever drafts of, of, of fiction is such an important part of the creative process. Mm. Um, and with nonfiction, yes, it is important, but it is more from, uh, I feel it's more from a structural point of view, from the finding the gaps that are missing, you know, you know, all that sort of thing. They aren't the same uh, um, issues to do with uh, dialogue and uh, characterization and pacing there is in a sense, but not pacing of, you know, a narrative of, of, of you know, when, when the protagonist is doing this, that and the other. But I wanted to ask you, with your first draft of the book that you've got coming out in, is it October? Yes. Yeah, in October, how vastly different it was the final result to, well, what you affectionately call the vomit draft, I think. <laughs> <laughs> how different is it? it? In this particular instance, it's not massively different there's a couple of um i had to rework a couple of major scenes because they just you know my editor said to me you know i really like what you're doing here but i just don't believe it 
<laughs> right. Kind of go, what do you mean? You don't believe it. <laughs> She's like, I just don't believe it's possible for X, Y, and Z. And so then you go back and you go, you know what, you're right. And, mm. and I've reworked that. So the, the basic um, overview and outline of the book is, is essentially unchanged. I've done books in the past where the first uh, draft is markedly different mm. from the from the final draft and that's usually but that I think that that comes with practice as well like mm. that was one of my very earliest books and I had to rework it and rework it and each time I reworked it I I learned a bit more I learned a bit mm. more I learned a bit more and so the you bring all of that knowledge to the next book and so the whole process becomes easier and then the third book you know it becomes easier again technically I'm hoping that's how it's going to (laughs) work yeah um but I you know I find it really I I did a Facebook chat with Fleur McDonald the rural fiction author yes uh last week with the Pink Fibro book club and she she does one draft like she just basically puts it out and then sends it to her editor so she she is not an author who redrafts several times before she sends it into the publishing house she she does one and then she works with very closely with the editor to rework the book um, was what she said. Whereas other authors I know will do five drafts before, you know, they let another soul in the entire universe look at it. So, again, I say, you know, everybody works differently and I think the the one thing that you – that comes with practice with a with being a writer is working out how you work and what exactly. works best for you. And I think that that's what you. I mean, it's uh, take take in the advice, take in the information available, and then think right. How am I going to do this? Exactly, and it's all to do with your confidence as well. Maybe if you're ridiculously confident, you just go, "Okay, here's my first draft. Here's my vomit." Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'd like to be that one. Okay, so this week we have a really interesting writer in residence on our podcast. Tell us about who it is. Well, we do. We actually have a writer and bookseller in in residence this week. We have John Purcell, who is the guru from Booktopia, their chief um, book buyer and head of marketing. And he also has a little secret. And the interview was fascinating for me because from the perspective of him being someone who writes but also a person who who buys books to sell to other people um there was there was a lot of really interesting information and i I think everyone will find it great john purcell is the book guru aka the chief book buyer and head of marketing at booktopia australia's fastest growing online bookstore Booktopia offers more than 4 million books, both print and e-books, and ships all over the world. John has more than 20 years' experience in the book industry, and he also has a secret. The married father of two writes best-selling erotic fiction under the name Natasha Walker. So welcome, John. Thank you for having me. Very, very nice to have you. So let's just talk a little bit about Natasha first, because she sounds so exciting. Um, Is The Secret Lies of Emma Trilogy your first foray into writing fiction? Oh, no. Um, I've, I've been writing since I was about 18. Okay. And, yeah, so it's been a long, long time. And um, I actually wrote the, the sort of the draft of Emma way back in 2003. Okay. And yeah, the time so wasn't I, right for her at that point? Um, I didn't even expect it to. It was just a bit of fun that I was having with um, with a few friends who were, who were interested in reading that sort of thing and, and also looking. Um, I, I sort of developed from from some short stories that turned into more of a novel and I got sort of tied up and caught up and um, it got a bit messy, so I just put it in a drawer and left it alone. Okay, so you just sort of didn't necessarily set out to write erotica or you did? 
No, it wasn't. Um, the erotic novel side of things was it came from a, sh a short story that I, I was short stories that I was sending back between friends, and what I what I found was that if I was going to set a story in contemporary in the contemporary world, I found at that time that that there was so much um, going on in the sexual world, which is sort of one step behind the veneer that we show everyone, yes. and that. That sort of took over the novel, um, but it's it's more of a novel about personal freedom than it is. I mean, it has lots of sex in it, but it, it's a, a, about trying to remain in a relationship while remaining yourself. Okay, well, that's that's really interesting. But uh, given the number of books that you've you know bought and sold over the years, because you've been in this game for a long time, how did it feel to see your own out there in the world? It was a very strange feeling because it didn't have my name on it. Uh -huh. um, and I wasn't allowed to tell anyone, so only a few um, family and friends uh, knew from the beginning. Um, my boss here at um, Booktopia, Tony Nash, he knew. Um, I, I approached him and said, look, would you mind if I did this? And he said, no, I love it. Um, so, <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I had to sit on this secret, um, and it was a long time because I didn't really start to tell people um, probably until the second, uh, way after the second book came out, and uh, I had to tell, tell some work colleagues because it became necessary to try and explain uh, certain moments of distraction. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> um, so why did you, because you, I think the, I, I saw a, the first in, inklings of it on the Women's Weekly website and then there, I think there's a, there was a feature, is that correct? Yeah. So yeah. why did you suddenly decide to come out? Um, when, when, I, when, they, when Random House first took it, they didn't know who it was, um, okay. who, wrote, who wrote it. Um, and then one of them, you know, pretty much said, we need to know um, for legal reasons um, who wrote it. So the secret was kept by this person there. Um, and when I met them, um, they were, they were well, you're, you're a young bloke, you're busy um, kind of guy. You're not, um, you, you, you sort of suit the audience so we should reveal you at some stage um, I don't think there's any harm in it um, to, to sales or for the market or anything like that if you, if you were to, to come out right. um, and, and at that stage they were sort of talking about um, coming out after the second book but nothing more was said apart from that initial meeting so um, in my mind I wasn't really going to come out um, at all uh, I was going to let the three books go and, and, and that was that um, but when the third book came out um, and I, I wanted to just give it another push, um, and I thought I was trying to work out ways in which I could do it. And and, and you know, books in in series are very difficult. You generally sell most in the first volume, less in the second, and, and less in the third. Okay. So, um, uh, and, and knowing Caroline Overton through this job and through doing um, bits and pieces with her over the years, I thought it was quite natural to just give her a call and see if she wanted to wanted the story. Oh, fair enough. The expose, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and she laughed. She was laughing. She kept laughing for about two weeks. I think she was laughing. <laughs> I don't blame her. I'm kind of laughing myself just a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, what did you learn, like, through your experience of of selling books over the years and talking about books and all the other things that you do with books? Did you use any of that experience or the things that you learned from that when your own book came out? To, I mean, it wasn't like you could kind of come out and shout on high and promote it that way. Was there anything that you were able to do that you that you could do? Yeah, I was. Um, 
I was very eager to, to ensure that um, Random House were going to back it and get it placed in the right right places. And this is the this is the one key thing uh, I think for anyone who who's who's getting that exciting moment where they're signing a contract for a book to be published is that's that moment is really one chance because um, even though you feel like you have absolutely no power in that moment and you're just so glad that you're getting published, it really is the time to um, ensure they either uh, get you some sort of advance, which they then have to make up, which then means they have to put some marketing into it to recruit their um, investment. And that that moment um, is, is vital. And a lot of people just get published. They, they, there's no commitment from the publisher that they're going to market it or put any effort into it at all. And their wonderful book just gets plonked on a shelf, uh, spine outwards, and uh, and has to fend for itself. Um, and having the publisher behind you is is massive. So, what what kind of questions, or what you know, when you say that's your moment of power, what what can I do in that point to kind of to give my best, my book its best shot? Well, they've 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 given over. They've said they've said they're they're interested in your book. They have, they have some value in the book, and they want to publish this book now. It's probably best then to try and suss them out and ask them questions about um, where they think it fits in the market. Because the, on on the selling sheets that come to me, I will have super lead titles, lead titles, um, sort of the middle of the range titles, and then then things that we agreed to publish and we, no one can understand why we did. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And it's 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 really hard to see see you know some really great names and some great stories on those lists and where they land. Um, okay. And being and being anonymous allowed me because my the, the rep that came in from random to sell to me did not know, so I was able to see how they were presenting my own book to the book buyers in in Australia. That's a massive um, advantage, isn't it? Really, like you got to see the inside workings that most authors never get to see. Yeah, so some people sit back and go, "Why did my book do well? What what was going wrong there? What, what was and." It was only because it's a one-hour meeting. The rep has spent, you know, thirty percent of that time on the first three titles, um, talking about how they're going to promote it and what are you going to do. You're going to put it in the front window. You're going to put it on the front of your website. And your book ended up being one that was spent a, a minute or two uh, at the end of the meeting when everyone's sort of over the subject and ready to move uh, on. Yeah, ready to move on. So um, finding out right early, I mean. Getting published is great, and if you have a lot of motivation, you can sell a lot of copies. Um, if you can self-publicize and, and market your own book, you can do quite well. But um, and and if you just want to be published, and, and it's just a nice little boost for your your writing career and your your esteem, and, and your next book's going to be bigger, and they're going to ask for it, uh, give you a massive advance for it. If that's the case, then you know, and if you don't feel like you can you know rock the boat at that vital stage, um, then then don't. But if you feel that you've got a product that is um, has a market, you've already you already know that you've um, that you've sussed it out, and, and that there's a great opportunity and great potential in your work. Then I would I would ask those questions about just how what sort of marketing dollar would they put behind it? Okay. So, do you think an author platform makes a difference when it comes to this kind of stuff? Because like, you know, writers are constantly told about this author platform. You have to build it. You've got to be out there. You've got to do stuff. And um, the question, one of the questions that I get asked really regularly through my website and things is, 
if I put all my time into that, I don't have time to write, you know. <laughs> so yeah. it's a real conundrum for people. But do you see, through Booktopia, can you see the difference of people who are making a big effort in that area and people who aren't? Uh, yes, um, I can. Uh, there is a yes and no to this because okay. um, I've had people who have a million followers in the US um, retweet a number of times their book on our website and we've got nothing. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that you know, the, the publisher has sold that in as this person has so much so much reach on the social networks that uh, it's impossible to fail. Um, and I've seen people with 300 um, followers on Twitter um, generate a great deal of um, uh, trust in their brand uh, and enthusiasm about their product that leads to direct sales that influence, you know, um, and, and their relationships that people feel they want to then express their enjoyment of the work through social media or through blogging or through, and that, that sort of relationship on social uh, media where it's real um, human to human communication, um, honesty, respect, that sort of relationship sometimes has much greater value than a million followers. So the quality over quantity thing is actually a, a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. For, for us, um, as online booksellers, um, it certainly plays a part. If I have, if I have a, a debut novel, or if I have a, um, a celebrity who's written a, a, a memoir, and I look it up, and they've got very few followers on Twitter, it does mean I'm we're starting from a standing, a, a standing start. Right. Um, and so when we do our blogs and when we do that, we know that, that on their side, they're not going to be retweeting it or sharing it with their followers. Yeah. And so the blog is, is all our effort and our newsletters that go out will be, will be doing most of the work. Um, so in that side, I, I sometimes feel a little bit more persuaded if someone has um, at least a, a, a footprint on, on social media to, to order more stock or to, um, to put it higher up in my, in my, newsletters and uh, and and have a um, greater greater faith in it um, in my marketing spend okay so well then from your perspective you know what would you say are the most effective things that an author can do to help market their own books is um, obviously having a footprint online is important particularly when it comes to online sales um, is there anything else you know from a bookseller's perspective that you think are um, are worth doing. Like, are other launches worth doing? Are the are the library talks worth doing? Like, what what do you what do you think? I think um, community radio, um, library talks. Um, I think getting out and um, and meeting people is really impo important in this um, in this world and in this digital world. Uh, it it creates um, bonds that last. I mean, Matthew Riley when he started. Um, made an effort to go everywhere and there are people now who met him back in the early 90s who refer to their first time they met Matthew Riley um, right. and, and they've been advocates you know when whenever a new book comes out you know, they're, they're, they're little mouthpieces for, for, for him um, because they met him um, before he was famous they met him you know they have that sort of um, we're, we're long long time friends we kind of first, yeah. exactly yeah. and I and it seems strange, but uh, I, I noticed that Greg Barron, um, who, who wrote some, uh, written a couple of thrillers for um, Harper Collins, yeah. um, he's been tireless, and yeah. his you know, his reach is getting 
bigger and and he's putting that book in people's faces consistently um through social media and through visits you know physical visits to bookshops and the like and it, it is terrifying to me when i think i think what he does and i and i i his courage and his um, determination is to be applauded because you know i i would i quail at that sort of stuff of, of turning up to to libraries and, and 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 talking about talking to small audiences um but it works it, it it actually does work and I, I think that's something that we all try to shortcut because uh, the social media is so much easier you can sit on your um, couch watching game of thrones in your pajamas and and have a social reach um, <laughs> it's so true isn't it it's so much easier than having to stand you know get dressed and stand up in front of people <laughs> yeah and there, and there are audiences all over australia who are you know there there are groups there are committees there are um uh, libraries and and um, book groups everywhere, um, and they're they're all looking for for content, just like the internet's looking for content. And uh, a nice a nice physical author to to actually take the time and meet them and and chat um, will be remembered. Okay, so are you just just let's move on to just a couple of general questions about book buying and things like that. Do you see that shopping online has changed the way that people buy books? Um, yeah. Um, there, it, it seems to be um, one of the things that, that is diluting the market is access to everything. Yeah. Um, so when you went into your local bookshop, no matter how big it was, you would walk through a barrage of what they want you to buy before you got into the stacks and you got into the shelves where, where you, the rest of, rest of the books were. And very few humans made it through that barrage. Um, they were generally attracted by some wonderful glossy new thing that was sitting there and they didn't get to the book that was published 20 years ago that's in the back yeah. um now if you're talking with um an old friend or a psychiatrist may gives you a recommendation or your doctor says this is the best health books he's, he's ever read um you look it up online and you can get it and that's your that's your sort of your reading time um is given over to that particular book so Family histories, um, strange little histories of um, that you, you you found interesting because you saw half a documentary on on SBS one night, and you decided to look something up, and you found a link to Booktopia, and there was a book on the subject. Yeah. Um, so in our warehouse, we have all the all the mainstream bestsellers that are coming out, and we we stock all those and we advertise all those. But if you spend twenty minutes down there, you will notice that the depth and variety of, of um, Australian readers uh, the, in, the, in the books they're reading is incredible. Uh, and that's just because there's now access uh, to it. Um, so that that long tail is really um, really changing book buying because you, does, it takes as long to read um, a book that you, you uh, looked hard and uh, looked look very hard to find. And and you finally got it uh, as it does to read the latest um, Lee Child. So you're out of the market for that time. Um, do I that do album. I pop on to buy my you know strange little family history that I that I you know has piqued my interest and then pick up something else while I'm there, or am I specifically like I've come for that title, I'm buying that title, and I'm out at the door? My job is to make sure you don't leave without buying something else. That's, that's pretty much my job. Uh, and is it working for you? <laughs> yeah, we've, the number we, we have sort of figures that come through, and the figures for um, number of books per order uh, keeps growing. Oh, so, that's great. 
so people are buying more per order um, every every day. Um, so yes, in a sense, it's it's working. And when when you when you get in the in the middle of something like a, a Fifty Shades um, moment, people come in Fifty Shades and then do the rest of their shopping. So right, you could, you know, with with Fifty Shades, you saw Fifty Shades, you saw Sylvia Day, then you saw Thomas the Tank, um, you saw. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the strangest thing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, people do once they're there. And especially um, because of uh, some people aren't home, so they have to go to the post office, pick up their books, and their homars will get it all in one go. And yeah. then at the post office so often. Um, or um, if they're paying, paying the shipping, then they think, well, if I put it all on, the shipping's less. Yep. Uh, Makes more so sense. They, yeah. Um, and also, we're always on the side saying, buy this, buy this, buy this. <laughs> That's you over there waving a flag, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so just to sum up, let's let's do um, your best three tips for authors to help booksellers to help them. Top three tips. Uh, um, ensure that you've got some commitment from your publisher to um, to to market you and to to present you. Um, easy easy tips is um, I would ask the marketing or publicity people whether or not they can get a, a banner for your book onto onto one of the big websites or get a poster made if you want to get into a into a um, into a shop okay. um that's a very basic stuff. i would never have thought of that i'm so glad you said that because i would never have even thought of asking about that so that that's a good that's a great tip yeah. okay so that, that didn't cost any, much at all for for a designer just to whip up a especially if you've got an area where you, you know if you're selling a book that's in a particular area in non-fiction Generally, there's no no other competition for that space for a banner. So, um, if your book is is there and it's got a nice little banner sitting beside it, um, saying, um, you know, if you're looking through that that section on the on the on the website and there's a banner talking about your book, you're more likely to sell. Um, so yeah, I suppose the other one would be if you are going to use social media, um, be yourself and have conversations. Don't spruik your book. Okay. Um, it's you know, just just sort of dead links with with um, another review of my book, another this, and just sort of um, just constantly going out there. The most successful um, social media people I've seen uh, actively engage with their audience. Um, I mean, even Joan Collins actually actively engage. Uh, Jackie Collins actually act um, actively engages in her in her audience. She answers back, um, and that is yes. Wow. <laughs> so. She she's she was amazing, and she she's a great lesson for anyone who wants to to get to get um, somewhere in in publishing. She says yes. So when someone says a blogger says, "Will you answer my questions for my blog?" She says yes, and she rattles them off in in that in that time. If if someone says, "I want to interview you," she says yes. You know, she yes. Just, yes. 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 Um, I'll I'll take time to do that. Will you come to visit our bookshop? Oh yes, I would. Yeah, I will come. Um, and uh, there are people who don't make time, and some people who don't make time, you, I, I sometimes wonder who they think, where they think they're sitting in 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 the realm of book selling and and publishing. Because okay. I think to myself, if I'm if I'm given that opportunity to be semi-successful in a in a in a field like um, publishing, you would try and do your utmost to answer yes and and appear and do the things if people are asking. If people are asking, wow, you're way ahead of everyone else. Yes, you're right, because most people are out there trying to flog themselves, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Without people yeah. asking. 
All right. Well, that's um, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your insight today. I really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you on Booktopia. Thank you very much. It was fun. That was great. That was fascinating talking to John. You, you talking to John, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, no, he, look, look, it's always great to talk to someone who really knows their game and he obviously does. And I really recommend that, um, you know, following Booktopia on Twitter as well because they tweet a lot of uh, great links and their um, blog is, is terrific. So it's definitely worth it. They are just at Booktopia, um, which I will put in the show notes. And today, what uh, what have we got in terms of um, what's going on on the internet and Twitter well, and stuff? Um, well, speaking of Twitter, I um, I actually wanted to talk about another great uh, source of writing links, and that's she's in a US author called Elizabeth S. Craig, and she um, pretty much. That's what she does. She doesn't actually do a lot of uh, interaction or engagement or talking to people, but she tweets. She, she, I don't know, she seems to round up. She must spend her entire life scouring the internet because she tweets links to great writing articles. She finds them. And then at the end of the week, she puts them into a blog post. So in case you missed any, you can go to her blog and there they will all be. And I really um, think that she's worth a follow if, you, you know, if you're interested in the subject of writing. Great. Don't you love a great curator? Oh, I do. I really do. It's she's a, a skill. It is a skill and she's very good at it. So, yeah, she's definitely worth a follow. And one of the segments that we've introduced to the podcast is a working writer's tip because both of us get asked a lot about some, you know, actual practical tips on uh, the, the craft of writing and, you know, earning money as a writer, that sort of thing. So what are we addressing this week? Well, this week we're addressing pitching and this, the question actually came out of the um, the Australian Writers' Centre's Graduates Facebook group. Like one of the bonuses of doing uh, one of the Writers' Centre courses is that you get access to this fantastic community of people who share information. And someone in the group asked, how many pictures do people aim to get out in a week and what the recommendation would be for someone who wants to make it as a, a full-time as a freelancer? So how much pitching do you actually need to do? And in this particular instance, Sue White, who is one of the uh, presenters in the magazine um, writing course, along with myself, of course, <laughs> popped into the group and she gave a fantastic answer. So her answer was to pitch consistently at a rate that is sustainable. Mm. So something that you're not going to forget to follow up and something that you're actually going to be able to deliver on, which is really important, and that you should have a 12-month strategy in place that helps you to know you know, whether you're on track, where you need to put your energies. And I think that this is really great advice because I think what happens when you're freelancing um, is that you – you get a body of work, you get a group, uh, sort of a group of work in, a group of stories to do, and you'll be so busy focusing on getting that work done that you forget to pitch. Mm, yeah. So you get to the end of that work and you go, oh, wait a minute, there's nothing on the horizon. And so you suddenly send out 10 pitches, which mm. is fine. Unless, of course, everybody comes back on the same day and says yes <laughs> and suddenly you've got 10 stories to deliver within, you know, two weeks and you're, you're in a real mess. And I know that there is definitely a feast and famine aspect to freelancing. Like, mm. Trust me, I know, even after all these years. But um, the, this notion of having perhaps one day a week um, where you will send out sort of some pictures is a great idea. And Sue suggests maybe three well-researched well, let me say that again, three well-researched pitches a week. 
yeah. that it's hard to keep up with if the commissions, you know, do start to come in. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Would you agree? I think definitely three well-researched pictures a week, particularly if they all say yes. Now, I know a lot of listeners are going to say, well, you know, they're not, they may not all say yes. They may all say no. And that certainly does happen a little bit more when you're new to the game. But yes. when you're more established, usually almost all your pictures get accepted because you've, you've worked out, you know, how to play it. Um, and, you know, our course teaches you the rules basically. But when you're new at it and and you're wondering, well, what if they don't say yes? Um, I think I always liken it to dating. It's just like dating. It's like a numbers game. You've got to get out there and you've got to, you know, put it out there. Um, and sometimes they're going to say yes and sometimes going to say no. If you act like, uh, you know, really presumptuous or really arrogant or like, that, or, 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 or like, you know, your pitch should be accepted, chances are people are going to reject you. But if you, you know, follow the 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 framework um, that that we teach and follow what editors want and analyze a magazine and see what an editor is likely to want then you're much more likely to you know get a strike so I kind of uh, it, uh, when you're starting out I kind of liken it to dating I, I like that style it's, <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right you're sort of trying to find a good fit aren't you as you mm. fling yourself about in cocktail bars all over the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. Have I revealed too much about myself? <laughs> well, we've come towards the end of our podcast and we've been so thankful and grateful to all of you who have been listening. Um, we've got some great feedback and emails and tweets and, you know, thank you so much for all of your comments. If you would like to comment um, on the actual podcast uh, at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast, please do, or please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate uh, your honest feedback and review on iTunes that'd be great um, and yeah we just thank you so much for listening so um, if you do have um, some questions you'd like us to answer on the podcast email us at podcast at writerscentre.com.au we'll put that in the show notes as well and um, yeah before we end off uh, tell us Al what are you up to this week well, you know, given that looming deadline of the school holidays beginning, I, I'm very, very much focused on getting my my first vomit draft <laughs> my system. <laughs> so clearly I'll be vomiting this week. <laughs> oh, that sounds so enticing. Oh, no. And you, Val, what will you be doing? Uh, tonight I'm hosting a meetup at the Australian Writers' Centre in Sydney with the author Tristan Banks, children's author Tristan Banks, um, who, who's a great guy. I've known him for a long time. And uh, later this week, I'm doing a keynote speech on my book, Power Stories, the eight stories you must tell to build an epic business at the Australian Technology Park. So that should be fun. Fantastic. Um, with your jet lag and everything. With my jet lag, yes. And, <laughs> and, you know, I didn't get a lot of sleep because I watched the whole season of Downton Abbey on the flight from LA to Sydney. Oh, well, that, I'm sorry. You have no one to blame. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the end of So You Want to Be a Writer. Thanks for listening. I'm Valerie Koo. I'm at ValerieKoo.com. Where do we find you, Alison? Uh, I'm Alison Tate, and you'll find me at AlisonTate.com. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.